0: Welcome to the Royal Diaries, Unlocking History. My name is Julia. My name is Alicia. We are sisters who love books, history, and talking about them home. We're doing a deep dive into the Royal Diaries series. Come with us as we learn about the girls who became women that shaped history. Weetamoo, Heart of the Pocasset, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, 1653. The summary reads: The 1653 to 1654 a diary of a 14-year-old set Indian girl destined to become a leader of her tribe describes how her life changes with the seasons, after a ritual fast she undertakes, and with her tribe's interactions with the English coatmen of the nearby Plymouth Colony. And it was written by Patricia Clark Smith. So it's actually really nice. We have an indigenous person who actually you know cares about the story, telling the story. A little bit more skin in the game. Just a little bit. Before we really get going, I did want to go and talk about the note at the beginning. That was something that was interesting. There's never a foreword in these books. Weetamu is a unique subject in the Royal Diary series. Unlike other young women of the series, Weetamu did not read or write and would not have kept a diary in the traditional sense of written accounts of her daily life. Weetamu's Wampanoag people had many other ways of recording things important to them. They etched pictures on rock, drew on birch bark, wove coded messages into intricate patterns of wampum belts made of white and purple clamshell beads. Above all, they were an oral culture. The Wampanoag's ability to listen and remember well was prodigious. By word of mouth, they passed down stories, histories, genealogies, prayers, recipes, ceremonies, ways of healing, and all that told them who they were and how to survive. As this book suggests, the Native Americans of the 17th century in Massachusetts understood the potential power and usefulness of English writing, but only Indians admitted to English schools were those who were willing to accept Christianity and English ways of life. Witamu was not one of those. And so to present the story of this brilliant Native American woman leader in her girlhood, we have imagined here what her thoughts and experience might have been and how she would have kept track of them. We hope some sense of the wisdom of her people is conveyed in this fictional account of the real Witamu. That forward should have been in front of how many of these books? Yeah. Just to give a little bit more historical context right off the get-go, because you don't know how many people I've seen on the internet who, for some reason, are just no fault of their own, genuinely were like, I thought these were legitimate. What? Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine you're a child and that line between fact and fiction is being very blurred here. And also, I'm like, they could have totally put a forward like this in front of Nzinga's like we talked about. How she's, I'm writing in the language of the enemy, i.e. I'm writing my diary in Portuguese. Okay. Yeah. But at the same time, though, as we also in discuss- within Nzinga, and even we actually brought up the wampum belt as an example in that episode, when they talk about how they talk for the drums. Yeah. It's like, that's a type of language. That's a type of literacy. If yeah. you want to actually, you know, have a more expansive understanding. I wish we had this type of forward in front of all the other books. And I appreciate that we have one here, but there is something a little bit upsetting that we're getting this, I think, for one of the few indigenous people within the series too as well. Well, then it almost, before you can extend your imagination into the realm of fiction and get to know someone you know, as a character, but therefore like that's your entry point to getting to know them as a person, you're being told kind of in a way, don't suspend your disbelief because mm-hmm. this is all made up. And I'm like, well, all of them were made up. You don't feel that way if you just dive into reading, you know, Elizabeth the mm-hmm. First writing about how we're running around Hatfield Court all of a sudden. You feel, oh, this is real. This happened. Mm hmm. So, yeah. pros and cons, pros and cons. Exactly. If mm-hmm. this was something that she wanted to do just to feel a certain type of ownership or better about her writing, do you do you? I mean, it's a lot better too, though, than some of the offers where it's um, I went to India once in my life and I suddenly became super interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, Like, here's my very tenuous thing about why it's okay that I'm writing this book. Here's, like, another thing as well. Like, not giving the story the space to just dive in as well. It just becomes another way of, again, othering certain type of people. Yeah, you know? like, they're not hashtag relatable because they don't write down stuff. Yeah, and she's so different. Except, I mean, this, so this is the first time I read this book. Really? Yes, because I've told you we're now into Felicia hasn't read this book zone of when this was written because this was written in 2003. So that I think we're in the realm of Felicia probably did not read these books now. You would definitely aged out of them. I've put into collecting mode. So this was my first time reading this book. And right away, this girl is already relatable to me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, considering she is told by her parents, you know, maybe you should take some time to yourself and uh, ponder patience. How dare this book speak to me? Yeah. (laughs) Because I'm always talking about what I need to be doing to make myself a better person is, you know, I really need to actually have designated time to quiet my mind, be with my thoughts, maybe journal, not always distracting myself with my phone. This book is convicting me. <laughs> How dare it! Also, her, mm-hmm. her being kind of a mean older sister at times. I'm yeah. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I was yeah. like, hey, it's me. <laughs> Also, I was so charmed by the little illustration drawings. I I thought they were adorable slash I really, really enjoyed them. I think that anybody who says that they didn't draw bad sketches or whatever type of sketches in their journal at one point is lying. To themselves and to all of us. I know. I, I love d- it. I'm just caught up with. After mother caught me quarreling with my sister earlier this evening over whose turn it is to grind the corn, she took me aside to remind me about my name. moo means sweetheart, and my family name he thus. So I'd bring harmony to the family and our people. Whoa, talk about that older daughter guilt. Um, this is me. Hello. I know I have a quick temper, but how can I ever learn to be as patient as someone like mother when I have such a pokey little sister? And my parents insist I learn to do all the pokey tasks children must do. Wow. Stare into my soul. Stare into my soul more book. So right away, I, 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 at first when I thought, oh, I'll just read this and I'll see how it goes. Yeah. And then I'll, like, put it down. If it's not, I'm not feeling it, but, like, you know, I'll, I'll do the task because that's what we got to do. Mm-hmm. So I didn't give myself initially enough time, but within, like, three pages of reading this, I'm like, oh, no, I'm not putting this bad boy down. I'm going to sit down and read this entire book and one in set. one sitting. I thought it is one thing about the doing this series is that you can really go and recreate that middle school vibe of being bullied and then just going and reading an entire book in one sitting and just not existing anymore in the world. Yeah. It's like, what did you do? Uh, I crammed this book. This was a good use of my time. Mm -hmm. The self-care was reading this book. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. But what did you think about the book, though, aside from feeling seen, heard, and understood? Which is what this book is supposed to do. That (laughs) is the whole purpose of these Royal Diary books. I'm just saying. I really enjoyed it. It was a good story. I really got a sense of her family, her community, sort of the day-to-day life, the rhythms of how they conducted themselves, and that pull pull tension of we have these coat people, aka the English just showing up here, and she has some okay interactions, but then, like, not okay interactions with it's, them. I think but. the thing is, is that even the most positive interactions are fundamentally clouded and tainted. From like, what we know happens in the well, future, too. But also even just how they talk, like, oh, like, come here, little savage. Yeah, and savage that- girl. She's like, I don't know what that means, but this lady's smiling. <laughs> she I, seems okay, I guess. But I think the thing is, so it's regardless of how positive the interaction is, is that because she's viewed as being inferior and as being uncivilized, it can never... Be a positive interaction. Yeah, because it's not an interaction of equals. Mm -hmm. I appreciated this one for not just leaving it as, what a fun hijink. Instead it was, how does this then develop further into her becoming a more mature and responsible young woman and part of her community because she's like Simba style. I can't wait to be I king. I literally just think Like uh, She's song. like, it's great. I don't have to do chores anymore and I'm in charge. And then she grows. She's oh wait, I realize that it actually means more responsibilities because I have to be looking out for everyone. So mm-hmm. maybe being the tribe leader isn't sitting back and enjoying the good life, so to speak. Yeah. When you're a kid, you want to be an adult because you think you can do whatever you want to do. And but then that's when you're a- an adult like, what am i exactly <laughs> i want like, the true freedom of being a child <laughs> exactly we've talked about how in previous books there's always a bit of a so where are we going what is the arc mm-hmm. of this even though i wouldn't say that this book technically has a very strong like we are working towards this goal or this type of event yeah you know there still was very strong pacing in the progression of who she was in terms of her character. It's very episodic, but all the episodes tie together very nicely. And they all build upon each other. Yeah, and then also, I think, isn't it just taking place within one year? Yeah, basically. Yeah, so I think that helps it. Yeah. Because, to your point, it's not like, I'm preparing to get married, or I'm preparing to assume the throne, or I'm preparing to go through this rite of passage ceremony Mm -hmm. that we never see on screen. I'm looking at you, Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I really liked her character just because I'm always looking for myself. Also, I want to go and say, finally, of course, Cedar and I have already had our women's initiations back when we started our monthly cycles. What? Finally! A period! A period finally shows up. A wild period. A wild period. Literally in the wild. Good for them. Exactly. Thank God. I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased about that. I think that the absence of period discussions or the absence of talking about, like, sexual health, which people talked about this type of stuff. We never went and talked about it. Like, that's a very anachronistic understanding of sex and sex education. Well, and... And also, because these are private diaries, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't something private and personal be discussed? I understand. Oh, we didn't talk about it in casual conversation with Mm -hmm. our friends or something. Are you telling me Marie Antoinette and her sisters never, I think, were cycling at the same time and like, this is weird? Or, you know, it's like the (laughs) fact that she and Louis haven't consummated their marriage. She definitely would have been writing about that. Yeah. Anyways. And that's the whole thing is you don't have to be overtly sexual. Yeah. And that's not what we're saying at all. And also menstruation as being this gross, icky taboo thing that which it's not. Think about the concept of your hair growing. Yeah, that's actually pretty nasty. Yeah. So if you want to be like that, if you're like hair growing isn't, then menstruation shouldn't be weird. Yeah. Anyways, that's enough period chalk for now. Tune in for our other tangential podcast, Period Pod. Oh God. Any other thoughts about the book so far? I'll just say this: like Sondoc. I'm very glad I read this. Mm-hmm. Check this one out if you you read it when you were younger and you were a bit like rap, you know what probably was a turnoff maybe for you who the hell is this where's pocahontas exactly step aside there's more than three indigenous women exactly what and she's one of them so read this book it's really good and it does get a little dark at some points with her vision quest premonitions of what is to come which i was just like whoa we're going there oh yeah we can get in there but as, yeah. you know what i'm glad that they did. For this episode, which was really a suggestion that you made, which I really have <laughs> leaned into now, is that we're having a bit of a guest who's coming to Thanksgiving dinner. I want you to go and picture the most uncomfortable dinner party of your life. So just imagine your normal family Thanksgiving. You are anywhere as dysfunctional as an average family is. At this point. Like people are starting to come over. It's somewhat potluck style. You know that you're gonna have a couple of cousins who will pop in there for only two minutes and they'll leave a bottle of wine and you gotta go and get the wine away from grandma. The room is uncomfortably hot because the oven's been going. For and like seven just, hours. You're just like can someone open a friggin window but then as soon as you do someone yells because it's cold in here but you're just like dying from the heat but you're also wearing your festive sweater so you're just oh my god. And it's also super loud Because not only do you have people are talking to each other, they have to actually be yelling at each other because you have free TVs on with different football games on at the same time. And then someone's yelling about how they can't hear their announcer over the other announcer. Anyway, so we're in we're talking about this type of Thanksgiving. We're going to go through our guest list. Initially, I was thinking about introducing Witamu at the very end. She's our guest of honor. But the thing is, so I realized that since uh, we are going to be jumping a little bit back and forth in between different places, factions, points in history, that she needs a bit of an introduction and in to ground us. And then we can go after we've sort of gone around the room and have made our introductions. So who is Witamu? So she was a sunsquaw or a female session basically a chief, and she was a hereditary chief of the Pogoset within the government, basically, of her people. You have the hereditary chiefs, but then you also then have like elective chiefs within several allied tribes within like a particular region. And the Pogoset tribe, which she was part of, occupied present day Tiverton, Rhode Island from like 1600s onwards. But they had actually been around for like thousands of years at this point archaeologists know that Indigenous people have been in what's now known as New England for minimum 10,000 years. She was born around 1635, but her birth year is a bit debated. So, this book takes place in 1653, so technically she would be 18, but they fudge with her age just a bit in this, which, you know, understandable. She was the daughter of Corbinant, Sashem of the Pocasset, and an unnamed mother who also held significant political power. Now, I just want to go and say before we get around to talking about our other guests that I know there is a gross feeling about talking so much about the colonizers and the various actors who brought about the near annihilation and the continuing marginalization of entire groups of people, but they are part of Weedmo's life and they are part of the story that we are telling today. Yeah. And further, by understanding the conditions that made a bunch of people get on a ship and permanently settle on the other side of the globe, we can also understand how colonization and continued settler colonialism came about and how it perpetuates. So that all being said, our next guest is... James the first of oh, him yeah sitting across from her awkwardly on the couch pretending that he is watching the football game but he's actually glaring at her is James the first of England aka James the sixth of Scotland and he is the son of Mary Queen of Scots yeah so but there's gonna be a lot of people I think I've heard that name before you've definitely heard that name before yes this bish. Yeah, to say that he's the instigator of the mess that caused the Mayflower to leave the UK would not be a completely fair assessment, though. What do you know about the Church of England at Um, this point? At this point, well, I know that after Henry VIII decided to make himself the supreme head of the church instead of the pope, there's a the back and forth between his son, Edward, then Mary, then you have Elizabeth, and then we have James. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of back and forthing of how smells and bells do we want to be? Mm-hmm. And how boring, whitewash, wearing dark clothes and being sad about Jesus do we want to be? Different sex just showing up. That's basically the difference ish that i know because james was raised by protestants specifically like presbyterian presbyterian john knox hardcore doom and gloom type of people yes very severe okay James, in 1603, rolls his ass down England to go and sit his butt down on another throne. Hmm. He has two thrones, even though he only has one bum. And he says, actually, hey, I like your church and that I, the king, and fundamentally in charge. I mean, why not? Yeah. He is seeing all of this as a bunch of Puritans. So the extreme end of the Protestant Reformation are sending him a petition that had a thousand or so signatures from their alleged supporters within the clergy. How many of those are actually in the clergy? This guy is a clergy. He supports us. Didn't he die five years ago? Doesn't matter. Sideshow Bob runs to be mayor of Springfield and then he he goes and he stacks the voting roll with dead people who have voted for him, including the pets in the pet cemetery. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Okay. So essentially, maybe this is maybe what these Puritans did. Maybe allegedly. So the petition, the Millenary Petition, requested reforms in the church, particularly the abolition of confirmation, wedding rings, and the term priest, and the wearing of cap and surplice, which they regarded as outward badges of popish errors to be made optional. James quickly said no. I like smells and bells. And I like it when people look in charge with a vestment. (laughs) Yeah. But who were these Puritans? Yeah. Put simply, Puritans were English Protestants in the 16th and 17th century who sought to purify the Church of England of Roman Catholic practices. In their view, they believed that the Church of England had not been fully reformed, the Reformation, remember, and should become more Protestant and do away with the trappings of Catholicism. They were, again, a reformed church, and they followed John Calvin's theology. I know that most people do not care about church schisms or that the words Presbyterian polity versus Episcopal or Reformed or Calvinism versus Arminianism, that it has little to no weight these days, but at the time, your thoughts on church governance or on particular aspects of theology could go and get you killed. Very much so. Hello, Mary of England. Yeah. Or remember, even in our last episode, Queen Christina's father, there was a 30-year war raging across Europe. Because of this kind of stuff. Exactly. What do you fundamentally do when you're a religious nonconformist? You go to this new place, this America you've been hearing so much about. And that's what they did. All the religious freaks just come to America. Oh, yeah. At this point, colonization was already well underway throughout Central and South America. Keep in mind that Weedmo's story is taking place towards the end of Mazinga's life at this point. The religious war that Christina's father went through, and Christina is currently imploding her life as Weedmo's going about her business. It is true. That's kind of cool. I'm locating Weedmo with previous women because this also gives us a broader context to work with. At that point, enslaved Africans have been being in ported for almost a 100 years plus to South America. The bulk of Europe was coming out of a quasi-holy war that was motivated by religious difference and intolerance of that difference. And you know who was one of those people who was trying to go and get his ass away from all of that? Our next guest, who is judging everybody for drinking the spice cocktail, Edward Winslow. He sounds like he'd be a sour boost. Who was he? He was an English separatist who basically carried the Plymouth colony on his back. When we go and we talk about somebody who does like all the work in the group project, he did everything in the group project. He changed the toilet paper roll. <laughs> I am the backbone of this colony. Exactly. I went and I stole from the indigenous people. I am the backbone of this colony. <laughs> so before getting on the Mayflower, and actually just a brief note, there were two ships, but long story short, they all had to go and get into the one at a certain point. The Puritans and Edward Winslow's specific faction were living in Holland slash the Dutch Republic. They were basically holding out hope that they would get their way, but that was clearly not going to happen. At that point, James I slash the sixth, his heir, the future Charles I, was probably going to marry a Catholic princess, and he eventually did. Mm. And it looked like the status quo was going to remain. So the Puritans got the idea we're going to go to the New World. We need to remember that at this point, there were already English colonies in present-day Virginia. Do you remember the song? In 1607, we sailed the ocean sea. For glory, God, and gold, Virginia Company. For the new world is like heaven, and we'll all be rich and free. For glory, God, and gold, we go, Virginia Company. Enter the drums for Disney's Pocahontas. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Only reason why I know when America was quote unquote discovered, colonized, whatever the heck the language when they when they set up Jamestown. Sixteen hundred seven. That's when Jamestown was founded. (laughs) Yeah, so Jamestown is in Virginia, and the Dutch have been trading up along the Hudson River since at least 1611, and the French have been in present-day Quebec since the mid-1500s. I do know this. Yeah. A reminder to our audience, we are Canadian. So if you were to ask me what do I actually know about this period of American history... Zero. Yeah. We're we're busy worrying about the French fur trade right now. And the feed, the raw, that are going to be shipped over soon. And we're also thinking about Champlain. and the Hudson's Bay Company and how they're starting to fight over turf. This is what we are taught to care about, okay? Like, I know who the Algonquin people are, but specifically we are learning about, like, the Iroquois Confederacy or the Haudenosaunee peoples. Yes. We're learning about the Mi'kmaq. The Métis who are now emerging. Yes. Because of these French and indigenous liaisons. Exactly. Anyways, every major colonial power except for Spain, because they were all down in South America, and Central america fighting with portugal and the french and florida who cares about florida everybody else has already been up and around this area it was well known and there have been settlements off and on but none that had actually stuck at this point so around 400 puritans and some non-puritans hop on the mayflower and spend the next two to three months crossing the atlantic And when they arrive in November, it's in what's now known as Cape Cod, and they were in the middle of a terrible winter. Two things need to go and be kept in mind here, though. They were actually originally aiming for Virginia. Previous Puritan colonies at Jamestown had failed spectacularly, but whatever, we can try again. We are godly trademark people. What they found, though, when they showed up was something that looked like an abandoned village but it was not abandoned. Oh, want to know why? The Wampanoag nations and peoples had this very smart idea of it's always super crappy extra weather by the bay and near the unsheltered water and beaches why don't we go and we move inland where all the trees are and we'll leave our summer homes basically alone? Kind of like the way how New Yorkers have like their timeshare in the Hamptons. Yes. They had their timeshares out on Cape Cod and then they would leave for the winter to go inland land where it was nicer. Truly trendsetters. So Piran is going to show up, they see this semi-abandoned village, and then instead of, hmm, I wonder what happened here, they go and they start exploring. They go and they find some stuff. And instead of thinking, hmm, maybe having all these things here is a sign that people live here, their first move is to loot the Wampanoag stockpiles of food that they left behind so they loot the stockpiles of food. Finding several heaps of stands interspersed among the natives' planting fields and house sites, the English set to digging and discovered the underground storage pits containing diverse fair Indian baskets filled with corn, some in ears fair and good of diverse colors, amounting to three or four bushels. They carried away as much as they could within one of the Indians' copper kettles, which they also stole, then returned to the place two days later to feed another seven bushels. The English credited God's good providence for this supposed discovery, explaining that because they had nothing to plant the next year, they might have starved if they had not taken this measure. Presumably, such a justification would not have satisfied the Wampanoags, who had devoted numerous hours of labor to producing this seed corn for their own people's use. Now, they would have to go hungry so the English could eat. Certainly, they also resented the English rifling their abandoned summer homes. The English mentioned sorting through the Wampanoag's wooden bowls, trays, and dishes, earthen pots, hand baskets made of crab shells wrought together, also an English pail or bucket. Worse still, some of the best things we took away with us and left the house standing as they were, as if restraining themselves from stealing the structure somehow mitigated the theft of what was inside. So, like, I didn't steal your house, Taylor Swift, on Rhode Island. I just broke into it and stole some of your choice things, and also ate a corn dog. Bye. Yeah. Just- is days into their American venture, the English had already established themselves as rotten guests. Winslow, you like no like Winslow is being like rude and judging everybody for drinking the cocktail. But you know that he's definitely putting a couple of your silverware and china in his bag by accident. I can't believe I just carried this out. You mean my giant vase? Oh my god, I can't believe it. that I just was crazy. in my bag. Yeah. Oh. He's also the dude who just skirts by your liquor cabinet and he's like, "Oh, they don't really need the scotch." What are you doing? <laughs> That guy sucks. Yeah. Plymouth Colony did face several difficulties during its first winter, the most notable being the risk of starvation and the lack of suitable shelter. Well, they should have thought about that when they came. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why, again, the Wampanoag are not around in this area. And the Pilgrims had no way of knowing that the ground would be frozen by the middle of November, making it impossible to do any planting. Nor were they prepared (laughs) for the snowstorms that would make the countryside impassable without any snowshoes. I mean, I'm laughing like a dick because Canada, that's why. I understand like if there are people who are not from North America and have not experienced a North American winter, and then they come here and they're just ill prepared with their clothing or just they have not felt a cold like this. I feel bad for them. I Uh, genuinely do. I mean, I have a friend who lives in the UK and she gobsmacked me when I found out that they have free rounds of planting. We get one, maybe in a good year you might get two. And several Puritans did die in that first winter, but again, due to help from the tribes and around the local area, they knew when they showed up, someone is trying to roll in here again and trying to set up, oh my god. They got help and all was not lost, specifically Squanto and Massasoit were significant figures and they are also our next guest. Oh, hey guys! Squanto, he's not going to get a whole lot of time right now. He's just showing up. He's dropping off part of the cheese board he promised, but he actually got a better invitation to another friend's place. So he's ditching the party, especially when he goes and he takes a look. Is that the bitch who stole me? Yeah. Squanto, whose name is actually Tisquantum, was a member of the Patuix tribe, and they were located in the Massachusetts Bay Area. He's also the guy who was kidnapped in 1614 by Thomas Hunt, a.k.a. a good friend of John Smith's, and he was taken to Europe. Tisquantum was in England, and that's where he learned the language, but he managed to return home in 1619 after being up north in what's now present-day Acadia and Newfoundland and he came back to find that his entire tribe had been wiped out by disease. Aww. That was Quantum. He just wanted to say, Hey, I contributed a lot, but I don't want to contribute to this mythology anymore. I'm going to a better party. Do that. Take so, care of yourself, man. Massasoit did not go and check the group chat, so didn't realize he was going to bounce. So now he's standing there in the corner. When can I gracefully leave? I'm like, Just go now. No one's looking. <laughs> yeah. So he was the sachem of the Wampanoag Confederacy. But what is this Wampanoag Confederacy that we've been hearing all about? For hundreds of years, people have used "tribe" to refer to the confederacies of locals, sachemships, known as the Wampanoags, the Narragansetts, the Mohegans, the Pequots. Yet, this word also has been applied so indiscriminately to so many different kinds of societies throughout the world that anthropologists consider it almost meaningless in a way. I mean, t-shirts do so I see words like "bride tribe." I know. And I'm like, "What?" Right now, there's a prevalence towards paramount sachemship, to tribe to describe the southern New England political structure in which a prestigious and powerful or paramount sachem collected tribute from a network of other local sachems to enable him to lead their foreign diplomacy, warfare, and trade, and in some cases to spare them from his own attacks. Wampanoag oral tradition also has the Paramount sachem serving as first among equals in periodic grand councils of the local sachems. These Paramount sachemships or tribes were a reflection both of shared kinship and culture among the constituent peoples and of the decision of otherwise autonomous communities to form temporary confederations under prominent region-wide leaders. However, to say that tribal divisions corresponded roughly to dialectical differences might be a confusing cause and effect. All Indians in southern New England spoke one or another dialect of the broader Algonquin language family, so when people who previously spoke different dialects allied with one another, it tended to standardize their speech. For this, I'm quoting from This Is Their Land. It was written by Silverman, and he's also Indigenous, and he's using the word Indian. I know that, like, up here, we say Indigenous, or we say First Nations, or you get more specific, Métis, Inuit, etc. Or if you have, like, the specific group, we use that. But he's using Indian. It's a part of the parlance. Yeah, you're quoting, essentially, is what you're saying. Yeah. And His, his word choice, not yours. Yeah, Among the Wampanoags, that process was ongoing in the mid-17th century, with the Wampanoags of Marfa's Vineyard pronouncing some words slightly differently from mainland Wampanoags. But that's like regional accents in a way, almost. Yeah. The Wampanoags and the Massachusetts people to the north shared the same dialect and perhaps not coincidentally were close political allies. The Wampanoags also easily comprehended the Narragansett to the west, whereas the speech of the more distant Algonquin peoples, such as the eastern Abenakis of Maine or the Mohicans of western Massachusetts, was more of a challenge. Winslow, so our dude, explained that, though there be a difference at a hundred miles distance of place, both in language and in manner yet, it is not so much for that they very well understand each other. It's so funny when they show up here, and they're like, how odd that these different people from different locations, a hundred miles away, understand you. Winslow, do you understand what people are saying in Bath versus when you're in Cornwall? Yeah. Yeah, you're still speaking English, even if someone sounds hoity-toity, and even if someone has got a Cornwallian accent. Cornish. Whatever. I get your point, though. I get angry about this kind of bull, Hanky. I know. What is this strangeness? It's the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The thing is, so it isn't just like the language, though. Kinship was another foundation for tribal identities. Members of any given Wampanoag community were likely to have relatives in other Wampanoag communities. Yet the point should not be taken too far. Wampanoags also commonly have relatives among other tribes in the region, including political rivals. A better way to think about language and kinship as an element of tribal identity is as tools that leaders use when building a confederacy of local ships. When the English arrived in southern New England, those tribes, or paramount ships, included the Wampanoags, meaning Donland people or Easterners, under Osumakwin. His local ship was... Uh, Poconoket of the northeastern Narragansett Bay, while his paramount stationship extended from Ponoquet up the Taunton River to its headwaters and due east to the tip of Cape Cod in the islands of Marfa's Vineyard and Nantucket. There was also the Narragansett tribe of the west of the Narragansett Bay under the sachems Conochius and his nephew Miantonomo, whose reach extended westward to the modern boundary of Rhode Island and Connecticut. To the northwest was a collection of loosely affiliated peoples known as the Nipmucks, who often found themselves as pawns in the rivalries of southern stations to reduce them to tributaries. West of the Narragansetts were the Pequots under the sachemship ship of Tatobem and the Pequots tributary, the Mohegans under the sachem Uncas. Finally, due north of the Wampanoags was the Massachusetts tribe of Massachusetts Bay under the sachem Na Na Pashemet, who were allied with Ousamequin and the Wampanoags against the Narragansetts. Okay, then. There were a lot of people in this area. Yes. We always go and talk about not wanting to reduce any group into a monolith, mm-hmm. but it becomes even more obviously egregious how it's done. And that was a very small part of this section when I was reading about who was in this area. Yeah. And there were even more. It's sort of to hone in on the point of when people are like, and then the native showed up yeah. and greeted us with wampum and corn. And you're just thinking from who from who which specific one of those groups that you were just talking about yeah the main thing to go and think about it as you have specific groups like specific for lack of a better word tribes yeah villages towns really because They would have populations up to 100,000 people. That's a town, easily. I can think of towns that have smaller populations. They existed, but they were under the Confederacy and basically like an allyship. To bring it back to our guy who is, again, now looking at the group chat and texting, why didn't you tell me we were ditching Massasoit? His people had been devastated by disease, though, by the time that the pilgrims have shown up. Most likely smallpox, but historians and anthropologists and archaeologists are debating that now. They think it could have been something else. But regardless, they're just not there in force. And also, they're under major threat by the Narragansetts at this point. Okay. He goes to the pilgrims and they forge an agreement. Oh, yeah. Because basically, the Wampanoags are like, we're dying of disease. We have our enemies breathing down our necks. We need allies. All around the area, people are falling ill because of disease. Yes. And it's like, well, these people aren't dying. Yeah. I should ally with them. So, this is where we go and get into how the single greatest reason that. Indians contracted European ailments at such high rates and died in such staggering numbers is that none of the adults had developed resistance for exposure in childhood, and therefore nearly everyone became ill at the same time without anyone left to provide care. Well, it's because cows are not a native species to North America. And Europeans have been essentially living alongside cows and pigs Mm -hmm. And all these other animals that carry these diseases. Diseases. And then they're essentially inoculating themselves from things. First inoculation against smallpox came from a variation of cowpox, Mm -hmm. which people would just get. And you would survive cowpox, therefore you wouldn't be as susceptible to smallpox. Yeah. And if there are no cows around you, how would you develop a natural immunity? We need to also remember that in... North, Central, and South America, because they didn't have livestock, then they weren't producing that disease. They also couldn't then go and give a disease that could then go and get taken back to Europe. That's how it happened, like, wildfire, like, there. These maladies became virgin soil epidemics, diseases to which the populations at risk had no previous contact, and therefore had not developed immunological resistance. At this point, above all, explains the sheer scale of the carnage. Parents, children, aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents all languished together. Those otherwise might have recovered with some basic nursing died miserably without food, water, and cleaning because nobody was available to provide essential care. William Bradford's description of a smallpox outbreak among Indians in the Connecticut River Valley in 1633-34 probably comes the closest to capturing the wretchedness of the epidemic of 1616-1619. "...fell down so generally of this disease that they were in the end not able to help one another, not to make fire, nor fetch a little water to drink, nor to bury any of the dead, but would strive as long as they could, and when they could procure no other means to make fire, they would burn the wooden trays and dishes they ate their meals in, and their very bows and arrows. And some would crawl out on all fours to get a little water, and sometimes die by the way and not being able to get in again." How could you like watch that and then write in your diary about that? An account help people for God's sake. The fact that people couldn't go and provide basic care is like freaking Florence Nightingale's. Like, hey, did you ever think that not going and leaving people to fester on dirty ground and like washing them on a regular basis might you know prevent death? Germ theory doesn't exist yet. Yeah, I get exactly. it. I get it. Squanto, have some mercury or something. Yeah. It's like, what? Exactly. This is what Massasoit is dealing with and mm-hmm. what the environment is like at this current point. There has been contact with colonists before and with traders, and that brought disease and that brought devastation. And now it is one of those things, too. And going back to we came across a village and it didn't look like there was anyone here. That probably wasn't not just because people were moving in and out, but it's like you would have whole villages wiped out. So you probably had tons of these mm-hmm. ghost town settlement places. Yeah. They just vanished kind of way. Good Squanto. He's gone for just under a decade, actually, and his entire tribe is wiped out by disease in that time. So that all being said, is that Messasoit made that initial alliance slash agreement with the colonists at Plymouth. And he was the one that had the most, I would not say close, and I wouldn't exactly say amiable, but one of those, we have to be practical about this. And he had that relationship with Edward Winslow. Hmm. That's basically like how we end up with there being a bit more of an agreement between the indigenous peoples with the Wampanoag people and the Puritans at this point. Why it went and became what it is, where there was actual formal agreements because of devastation, lack of resources, people dying outside frets too from like other groups. And this sort of then leads to, in a sense, Edward Winslow writing in December 1621, our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fouling and so we might, after a special manner, rejoin together. And after we had gathered the fruits of our labors, they four in one day killed as much fowl as with little help besides served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Many of the Indians coming amongst... Us, and amongst us the rest of their greatest king, Massasoit, and with some ninety men, for whom three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it is was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partake in our plenty. So that was essentially the story of the first Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah, I know, right? We have people encountering other people since, like, time immemorial, both peacefully and violently. Mm. I mean, heck, even the Vikings, like, made it to Newfoundland and Quebec hundreds of years before anybody else showed up in North America. yeah. There were particular conditions that made what ended up happening happen. It wasn't like we're both on equal footing and we happen to run into each other at the same time and like let's hang out, let's form an alliance, let's have a friendship. But Kai, my entire family and my network and everything has been devastated and wiped out and is on the verge of collapse. You want to hang out with me? You know who also wants to hang out with us at this really shitty Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, no. Her parents. Oh, hi, mom and dad. So in spring 1623, Edward Winslow traveled to a Pocoset village. He asked where their leader was, and apparently he was not at home. But he was greeted by this man's wife, who hosts him. She shares her grievances with him. All the while, while Edward Winslow does not clue in that he is speaking with a female sachem, Winslow gives the only account of this important woman in Puritan narratives. She was the leader, the wife of Corbinot, Whitney father, and a relation to many. She experienced the arrival of the newcomers and their incorporations into native networks of exchange and diplomacy. She hosted Winslow and the other leaders at her large home, Like other women, she cultivated and sustained the fields that fed the families. She felt the dire impacts of the diseases that ravaged her relations. Living through the epidemics and the first wave of colonization, she experienced unimaginable grief and loss. Yet she birthed and raised at least two daughters, Wutamu, or Nemampum, and Wutonakunasusk, who survived several epidemics as well as threats of violence to mature into leaders among their communities. Yet in Winslow's account, the significant mother and leader was not even named. <sighs> so obviously we have a very beginning of the differences of how women are viewed. Like this is another factor that I think sometimes goes to gets under-considered and how did things end up going and imploding in a way. Aside from the onset of we're going to show up and we're going to go and start just taking land of no consideration of who actually might already live here or live in communion with it, is that we have very different understandings of kinship, how the community works, and the role of half of the population too as well is very different. Well, and that's stemming from your belief and understanding of the world. I mean, Puritans are believing that Man and woman lived in perfection mm-hmm. until a woman ate forbidden fruit and therefore ruined the entire thing. Therefore, all women are just ruiners and they shouldn't have a place and they should just sit down, shut up and let the men be in charge versus a woman and a man being both active creator spirits who made all men and women and Mm -hmm. things and beings and whatever, both having equal roles to play in the cycle of life that continues throughout all time. Weedem's mother is in the group chat and she didn't show up because they always forget my name and that's why she's on the Thanksgiving party. However, her dad, Corbidon, is here, though. He's going to go and at least show up for the appetizer, but then he's going to go and get a work call. And he was a man of considerable importance, as indeed any man who could command 300 warriors would be in the Wampanoag Nation, weakened as it was by the raid of the Tarantines and the Plague. That is, he was not always in sympathy with some of Massasoit's moves, and his known hostility and independent scheming naturally led us to inquire whether the strength of the Wampanoags had not been greatly underestimated by some, the reasonable influence being that Corbinot might quite naturally be expected to lead an open revolt if there had been any chance of success, the natives had not been held back in check by any doctrine of the divine rights of kings and not looking upon the persons of their great chiefs as being in doubt of any particular sanctity. Corbinot, while maintaining friendly relations with the whites, apparently did it more as part of the political wisdom than through a desire to encourage and aid them. He was undoubtedly the sachem who was with Massasoit in his sickness in 1623, the day before Winslow arrived at the Soamps and sought to arouse Massasoit's hostility to the English. Winslow does not mention the name of this sachem, but enough is known of Corbetant to lead to the belief that it was he. On the occasion of this visit to Massasoit, Winslow stopped at the Matipurus with Corbitant on his way to the and after his mission was accomplished and Massasoit sufficiently recovered so that his friends returned to their homes, he went to Corbatant's lodge with him and spent the night there. He speaks of the chief as noble politician yet full of merry jests and squibs, and never better pleased than when the likes are returned upon him. Corbinot was one of the eight stations who acknowledged themselves as subjects of King James I in September 1621, his name being written as Cobitant on that document. So... What's your impression from that? He's not in a position where he necessarily wants to or is compelled to. I have no other option. I guess I better be friends with these people. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's his friend, Massasoit, who's, can you come with me? I have to meet up with these people. I know they're kind of d but like, I really need the help right now. And he's, I'm coming because I support you. Not because I like give a crap about these white people. He's being the wingman in this situation. But then even when he's hanging out with Winslow one-on-one, you can know, that he's just I'll smile I'll make jokes but like as soon as you leave I'm not gonna actively you know who I'd really like to hang out on a Friday night Winslow, Winslow. yeah He also has, in my considered opinion, one of the rawest questions of my life. This is recorded in Winslow's writings. If your love is so great and it grows such good fruits, why is it that when you come to our places or we go to yours, you stand as if ready to fight with the mouths of your guns pointed at us? And that's when he goes and he gets up from the dinner table. I could go and throw down right now, but I'm not. I'm not going to ruin this. I'm just going to leave. Good for him. Yeah. But you know who is sitting there and who's ready to fight? His son-in-law, Wamsuta. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So our next guest, Wamsuta, known colonially as Alexander, took over the public responsibilities of the ship from his father, Massasoit, in 1657. And he tried to establish right away that he was no English lackey. However, it was telling of the extent to which English land encroachment would dominate his short-lived rule when he pronounced, I, Wamsuta, am not willing at present to sell all they do desire, and it appeared in a deed for sale for part of what is now the city of Fall River. Mm. I know, right? The fact of the matter is that the ceding of land to the English and trying to keep his people quiet about it became a signature of his time in office. Uh-oh. I am not a crook. Exactly. On March 8, 1662, Lam Seto released his claims to the west end of Marfa's vineyard to William Brinton of Newport, Rhode Island, which so spooked the people of Aquinnah that they dropped their previous opposition to the Mayhew mission, apparently in an effort to secure English allies against the Sachem's over. Reach. He basically was selling other people's land. Like out from under them. It basically, he's like, I'm in charge of the big thing so I can do what I want with the little thing. That's pretty shady. Yeah. And the thing is, like, they really did have good reason to worry. Two months earlier, Wamsuda sold Peter Tallman of Newport, a massive area bounded in the north by the Seven Mile River and modern Attleboro, extending east to the Cog site of modern West Bridgewater, then south to the shorelines and west to the Natagasett Bay thereby encompassing most of the sanctioned ships of Sakonet and part of the Pocasset. What one person needs this much land? Him selling it to that one little English dude. Those little English dudes are today's billionaires. I know. Who needs that much money? Who needs that much land? Yeah, and that's also the question that Witamo was having. Her marriage to Wamsuda was supposed to be a mutually beneficial alliance between the Pocono cat and the Pocoset, not an invitation for her husband to market her people's territory. Rude. So on the 3rd of June, 1662... She appeared before the Plymouth General Court to complain, accompanied by Tadokomaka, son of the Sunsquaw shanks of the Sauconet, and probably one of her relatives. It must have been the second time that they had raised the matter, for back in March, Plymouth had deputized the traitor Tom Willett in a case of the Sunsquaw should be put off her ground by Tallman to see that she not be wronged in that behalf. This is no act of benevolence, for the colony also charged Willet for the use of this emergency to urge the Sakonets to sell their land to Plymouth before Wamsuta did. So don't get your land sold out from under you by that guy. Just sell to us directly. Exactly. Willet had another mission as well, to inform Wamsuta that Plymouth did not take kindly to him selling land to Rhode Island. Yet, Wamsuda continued to do as he pleased, including a bargain conducted just days after Willet's visit, in which he ceded providence and attractive land between the Seacond and the Pawatucket Rivers in exchange for 100 fathoms of wampum and other goods. Six weeks later, he provoked Plymouth again by conforming a sale to a group of men from Hainem, Massachusetts, to a 15-mile square tract along the Bay Colony's border with Plymouth. This dude is like running a land Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Under <laughs> the circumstances, Widmo and the Amishanks must have submitted their protests again against Wamsuda the Plymouth, knowing that the colony would leap at the chance to assert its authority along the contested boundary with Rhode Island. And Wamsuta was eventually arrested by the English. He then became ill, though, so he was released and died shortly afterwards. See, none of that comes across in this book. A lot of what's happened is like, debated AF because yes. records at this, are they telling the truth of what actually happened? Who said this? When did this? But generally, he was basically doing like, a fire sale with other people stuff. All cats are gray in the dark. Yeah. Also sitting next to him on the couch is his brother Metacom. Hey, I know him. Yeah. And he was the sachem of the Wampanoag confederacies and he was known as Philip by the colonists and he became the head sachem in 1662 when again his brother Wamsuta died, and he died actually shortly after the death of Massasoit. Mm. Just as a point of clarification, Massasoit died in 1661, but as previously noted, Wamsuta had already been leading and making uh, questions Questionable choices. Uh. Wamsuta's widow was wheatmo as we know, of the Pocoset, She actually was really close with Metacom, and she was really close friends with him. The fact that he also married her younger sister further solidified the familial and the political bonds between them. The way that the relationships were depicted in the book, by the way, was kind of cute. Yeah. I liked it. But also, too, remember her one vision? Well, she's like, I saw in the vision, I was older, I had a baby, and then I saw my sister, and she had a child, and then I saw Medicom, but we didn't see the other brother, he was gone. A Medicom and I were, and my baby were marked with a red plant, mm-hmm. and but my sister didn't receive the marking. Yeah. So to speak. Well, and this what? is all foreshadowing for King Philip's War. Yes. I'm drawing a lot from Our Beloved Kin, A New History of King Philip's War by Lisa Brooks. It's a great resource, not just on the conflict itself, but the overlying causes. Also, there's a great interactive website for the book that I just recommend you go and you look at in general in case you don't want to find a copy of the book. I love an interactive website. I'll definitely be linking that. She states that the war in which Wheatmo and James Printer became embroiled in would not have been known to them in any language as King Philip's War. As Jenny Pulsphere notes, that the appellation arose only in the 18th century, perhaps with the publication of Benjamin Church's Entertaining History of King Philip's War. Entertaining history of a brutal colonial fight. Love it. Charming tale. <laughs> Thomas Church published his father's boisterous memoir in 1716, 40 years after Benjamin Church led a company to capture and kill Metacom. Naming the conflict King Philip's War created an impression of finality. The indigenous rebellion had been crushed with the death of Philip, the subjugation complete, titles cleared. This act of naming contained the war from an ongoing multifaceted indigenous resistance led by an uncontainable network of indigenous leaders and families to a rebellion, an event that could be contained within one year by a single persuasive insurgent who had taken his exit and vanished. When you call the struggle King Philip's War, if there's no more King Philip, then the war's done. It also, too, at one hand, he was not an insignificant figure in this. I mean, he was leading the Wampanoag Confederacy. Yes. But it wasn't just them, and it wasn't just his choices going on but the thing is like what is this war it's considered to be the greatest calamity of 17th century new england and is arguably the deadliest war in colonial american history even more so than the american revolution so you don't learn that probably not i didn't know that in just over a year 12 of the region's towns were destroyed and many more were damaged the economy of plymouth and rhode island colonies were all but ruined and their population was decimated losing one-tenth of all men available for military service. More than half of New England's towns were attacked by natives, Hundreds of Wampanoags and their allies were publicly executed or enslaved, and the Wampanoags were left effectively landless. Mm. Exactly. The causes have been attributed to a few things. The breakdown of diplomacy between the Wampanoags and the colonists. Probably because the colonists kept stealing their shit. What? It's like that, but also the colonists tried to do a bit of a take back with the guns that they had traded to the Wampanoag Confederacy. You know that slur about certain types of giving. Exactly. It's kind of ironic because really, you're a colonial giver then. Yeah. The colonists were not holding their agreements over land occupation too. It wasn't even just that they were buying land, but don't sell your land to them. Sell it to me. There's the truth and the truth. Sign this piece of paper. Well, number 1, I can't read. Number yeah. 2, I can't write. What the hell do you mean sign this piece of paper? And yeah. then you don't even do what the piece of paper says. So what the hell is this piece of paper for? My view as like as I've been was reading about this conflict and reading about this period of history is that fundamentally we have two vastly different ways of being in the world and cultures and societies and that point they could not be reconciled yeah it's not just that we had people being ravaged by diseases that they never encountered that their way of okay we're gonna have a place where we live in the summer and then we're gonna move in the winter and that's not gonna go and be respected the fact that their political system was not recognized fully because what you have women here in power and in control. And this is one thing that the book really gets into, which I think is great. So even on an agricultural level, how they do things differently. Everything in its own separate box. Whereas, they grow their food in tandem and have much more of a symbiotic relationship with them. She talks about how the freaking cows are wandering around eating everything. Well, There's and then, no containment. Well, and it's kind of funny, too, because they're like, well, why don't you put up a fence if you want my cow to come into your land? Why don't you put up a fence to stop your cow from coming into my land? Exactly. Or, you know, watch your cow. Watch your damn cow. Exactly. Genuinely, if I ever met a pilgrim, I'd punch him in the nut. Pretty much. Yeah. Anyways, so there are a lot of things going on for the guests who we have been introduced to tonight. Why this very tenuous piece that they had for about 40 years kind of imploded rather quickly. Think about it this way from the Puritan's perspective. Here you have a group of people who have been ostracized and feel persecuted and nothing makes a person feel justified in their actions mm-hmm. if they feel like they are the... Capital V victim, one hundred percent. So I mean, if I'm the true victim, how could I be a victimizer? I'm like, well, very easily, very easily. But two things can coexist at the same time. Exactly. I'm not gonna go and give an entire play by play of Um, King's Phillips War. Yes. Go and read about it. Go and read Our Beloved Kin. It's wild. It starts around Plymouth Colony, and then at a certain point, it spreads up into Maine into Vermont. Because all of a sudden the colonists up there are hearing that, oh my gosh, those savages are rebellion. We need to get our guns back too. And then that causes an implosion as well. The pilgrims had been expanding their settlements too, as well, to the point where the indigenous people couldn't even go and like grow their own freaking land. They couldn't go and do what they had been doing, which is going in land, coming out of it, going in land, coming out of it. You're, you're working in tandem with nature instead of fighting against it. Well, and then also, then you don't have food. You're not able to go and access your family as well either, because you have to go and cross somebody else's land when you're not allowed to go and do that anymore. <sighs> It wasn't good. Abolish private property, y'all. Amen. But how does it really go and end? Metacom had managed several narrow escapes from aforementioned church's forces as they pursued him for the swamps of Wampanoag country, each time killing and capturing some of his men and confiscating his supplies. On August 12th, his luck finally ran out. As if to symbolize the very reason the Sachem had taken up arms in the first place, it was a Christian Wampanoag, a Pocasset named Alderman, who shot him dead. Oh dear. The war in southern New England largely ended with Metacom's death. More than a 1,000 colonists and 3,000 natives had died. More than half of all New England towns were attacked by native warriors, and many were completely destroyed. Several natives were enslaved and transported to Bermuda, including Metacom's son and numerous Mutants, they claim an ancestry from the native exiles. Members of the Sachem's extended family were placed among colonists in Rhode Island and eastern Connecticut. Other survivors joined western and northern tribes and refugee communities as captives or tribal members. Some of the native refugees returned to southern New England. The Narragansett, Wampanoags, Podunks, the Nipmucks suffered substantial losses. Several smaller bands were virtually eliminated as organized bands, and even the Mohegans were greatly weakened. The Wampanoag people still exist today yeah. as a confederacy. Yes. But it's one of those things of what was that point where. We've crossed the point of no return. So we've gone through this entire thing. Turkey's out on the table. Turkey remains the most disgusting food on the planet. Well, maybe not disgusting, but it's still the worst. Julia has a personal vendetta against Turkey. That's her journey. Yeah, uh, It doesn't have to be yours. And now we finally go and get to the reason that we're all here, our guest of honor. Weedmo, also known as Namumpum, was her father's heir as he had no sons. Her being her father's heir, will someone unusual was not unheard of. Moreover, female leadership was well regarded, as we had established with her mother. Amen. However, her sex made relations with the English colonizers even more tenuous. While Portsmouth men solidified their identities as planters by husbanding the land into orderly fields, Pocasite women derived strength from cultivating the intertwined mounds. Weetmoe's leadership arose from her role as a cultivator of diplomacy. In 1651, Deed recognized Weetmoe's title as the Squaw Sachem, a phrase Englishmen erroneously translate as queen or sachem's wife. English women's status was defined primarily by the men to whom they were bound, by birth to their father's rank, and by marriage to their husbands. Thus, it was challenging, despite the recent reign of Queen Elizabeth I, for English settlers to conceive of a native woman governing in her own right, particularly given that, in their hierarchies of race, class, and gender, an quote-unquote Indian woman would rank far below themselves. But despite these points of view, Widemos was still considered a strong leader, who while wanting to have a better than acrimonious relations with the colonists, was also not a pushover. As we already know, she disagreed with her husband over the selling of Pocasset lands without her consent, and was generally wary of the swarming that was happening by the colonists. These white men are dangerous. Exactly. Regarding the war, Witamo probably shared Metacom's belief that the English had actually poisoned her former husband. Fair enough. Also, when I say former husband, by the way, the woman married five times, and I'm not saying that as, like, a criticism at all. It's just, like, it's a fact of history. She was married briefly before she married Omasuta, and she got married to another guy who died then she got married to a guy who supported the English she divorced him Mm -hmm. and then she ended up going and marrying a guy part of the Narragansett and they apparently had a really nice marriage while it lasted that's nice yeah But that's not the point. But she definitely went and blamed the colonizers for repeatedly trying to swindle her out of her land, though. She had been at the forefront of the Wampanoag's reproachment to the Narragansetts, which is part of what made the Wampanoags believe that an anti-colonial uprising might be possible in the first place. Not least of all, her sister remained married to Medicom. Nevertheless, Church urged her to, to seek protection of her friend, Governor Winslow, a puzzling characterization given Winslow's history of high handedness with Indians, and stated belief that Widimo was undoubtedly a secret friend of Philip. No, if the people went to war, she was going to be among the sachems to lead it. She knew these people. She knew Winslow. She knew Church. She knew what these people were about. And because Metacom at this point, he's starting to go and gather forces. And they're like, you should go. I'm not. Ah, no. Of course she was going to go and be a significant figure in an anti-colonial struggle. They didn't have a good relationship with the Pilgrims. Anyways. Yeah. I'm not going to do a play-by-play of her role in the war. Aside from us knowing that a lot happened, we have differing and sometimes conflicting records. Even regarding her death, we don't know exactly what happened. This is, again, another example of a woman who we have some information about her life, not that much personal information. And what we do have is usually being written from the perspective of the people whose main goal in life was to occupy and exploit the land of her people and to drive them away. And to destroy her. Basically. Yeah. And so what happened was, is that... They made an ally of the Narragansett, their old enemies. The whole reason why they went and they made an agreement with the Pilgrims, because they were worried about the Narragansett, it got to the point where they said, nope, gonna go with them instead of you. I really wish they had done that a little sooner, but you know, hindsight's 20-20, right? Exactly. So not only were the English in pursuit, so was a bevy of the colonist Indian Allies. No sooner had news of the war reached the Mohegans that the Uncas declared his support of the English, volunteered 50 men to assist in the campaign, and delivered two of his sons to Boston as hostages. No, Uncas? Yeah, but as like a brief aside, Mary Rowland was a Puritan woman who got captured by the Pocaset people Mm. during this time, and she wrote an entire like account of her survival, and that basically launched the genre of I was held hostage. Hostage by the indigenous people, here's what I went through. AKA these clickbaity stories of, I survived with the Pocasets read how I did it. Exactly. Oh my god. Yeah. I think we had to read a book like that in school. My hair is so unusual and golden, they call me corn silk. I'm like, GTFO with this. Exactly. We were small children, like, we remember like, this is fishy. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah. At least 50 praying Indians from Massachusetts also stepped forward to assist the colonial troops. Despite constant English suspicions that their Indian allies were playing a double game, native guides led colonial forces to the very edge of Wampanoag camp the 1st of August 1676 and then served with distinction in a bloody four-hour battle conducted in a disorienting pre-dawn light. Wampanoag losses that day were reportedly severe, including four captains, or and their valiant resistance allowed the rest of the people to escape. Medicom, Tispaquin, and their followers continued northwest towards the Nickmuk country, while Witemu, and their followers broke south towards the Narragansetts. These were the friends and relatives who were by the Wampanoags with succor, so they could mourn the lives they had already lost and recover their strength. At this point, things are clearly falling apart. Yes. The war had been going on for just a little over a year, but we're at the end, basically. We are less than two weeks from Metacom's death at this point. Days after the attack, English Sakon forces captured Medicom's sister and another 173 Indians along the Taunton River near Bridgewater and killed his uncle, Uncomponen. Then, on the 6th of August, the English took 26 mostly Pocoset Wampanoag's and discovered Wheatmo's body, drowned in the Taunton River. Mm-hmm. She had been part of the sphere of the resistance from its start. There's a bit of a what happened to her body thing that I don't want to go and talk about in the same way that I didn't want to go and talk about what happened to Marie Antoinette because it's just we don't need to go and do that to her but general lack of respect for the dead the main thing that also like tings for me just a bit is that the only record that we have of what happened to her body comes from increased mappers It sounds very familiar. He was involved in the Salem Witch Trials. Oh, that bitch. Exactly. So that hoe is writing some shit about our girl. And I don't know if it was true, but you know what? That bitch lied about everything. If it has a vagina, it's of the devil. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's what we have to say about our honored guest. Damn it. I know. And now we're all sitting here. We've eaten too much and we're feeling kind of depressed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I want to close with the opening from This Land is Zaraland, the Wampanoag Indians' Plymouth Colony and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving by Silverman. This is our dessert. Serious, critical history tends to be hard on the living. It challenges us to see distortions embedded in the heroic national origin myths we have been taught since childhood. It takes enemies demonized by previous generations and treats them as worthy of understanding in their particular context. Ideological absolutes, civility and savagery, liberty and tyranny, and especially us and them, begin to blur. People from our own society who are not supposed to matter and whose historical experiences show how the injustices of the past have shaped the injustices of the present move from the shadows into the light. Because critical history challenges assumptions and authority, it often leaves us feeling uncomfortable, yet it also has the capacity to help us become more humble and humane. There always have been and always will be reactionaries who accuse the tellers of such history as iconoclasm. Today, such critics might make the charge of revisionism or political correctness. To defenders of the status quo, it does not matter if the origin, myth, or national history is untrue or hurtful to those it leaves out or vilifies. The point is that the story upholds the traditional social order by teaching that the rulers came by their position heroically, righteously, and even with the blessing of the divine. Such themes are favored by those guarding their privilege against the supposed barbarians at the gate. Damn. What I was hoping to go and show for this terrible Thanksgiving dinner, and as we are going through these different people, is that, yeah, they were individuals, and yes, they were placed in a very particular context. But it always comes back to how do we go and we tell the type of story that we want to go and tell and tell the type of history that we want to go and learn. I do think that one of the things in going and rereading these books in general, but then also trying to go and do a meaningful deep dive is to go and think critically about how is history presented to us? Who is made into a hero? Who is made into a villain? What's considered to be morally just or acceptable? What's considered to be unjust? How can I stop being a passive receiver of this information and instead interrogate, dig a little bit deeper, ask some questions and realize that this isn't about me or my feelings. This is about just trying to go in and cover and have a better understanding of the people in the world around me. Sometimes the story you think you know isn't true and it's not actually what you should be knowing mm-hmm. and it makes people feel uncomfortable. It makes people feel like they're the bad guy, or the baddie, are we the baddies? And it's more of like what would be better to have a lie that is comforting or to have a truth that makes you uncomfortable but through discomfort you can actually maybe grow and develop and evolve into something bigger and better and different. Yeah, that's all we can go and hope for, right? You're doing great. Thanks. Thank you for a horrible dinner. You're welcome. It was the worst dinner of my life. <laughs> Take the leftovers. There's green jello salad somewhere, probably. And I'm never eating another turkey in my whole life again. I'm taking that cranberry sauce, though. <laughs> Follow us for more research, fun facts, soundtracks, and aesthetic posts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter at Royal Diaries Pod.